Hello there, and welcome to Fuds on Film. I'm Drew, I'm joined today by Scott. Hello there. Now, in our last episode, we talked, amongst other films, about the Polish filmmaker Krzysztof Kieślowski's most famous work, the Trakuler Trilogy. Yet, for all of the claims of linked themes, and despite being quality films, there isn't much really tying them together, save for one coincidence and a very forced coda. They're a trilogy by retrofitting and colour only. (laughs) So, to counter that, in this episode we're looking at another French film trilogy, designed from the beginning to be a series of intertwined stories. (laughs) This trilogy, simply and, well, perfunctorily named Trilogy, is a series of films released in France at the beginning of 2003 and at the end of the year here, written, directed and starring Belgian filmmaker Luca Belvo set in and around Grenoble, with overlapping and interacting plots and characters, among the recurring characters being a communist anarcho-terrorist, a corrupt-ish police detective, a hypochondriac who imagines himself a target of the mafia, and three high school teachers, one a former anarcho-terrorist, one a heroin addict, and the other a jealous moron. (laughs) The conceit of Trilogy is that the three films are set in the same place and time, but central characters in one episode are secondary or peripheral characters in another. Belvaux wants to know what a minor character is doing when they're not on screen. With different perspectives and relationships to the events, and requiring viewing of all three films to piece together all that is happening. In addition, each film has its own style and viewpoint, and even its own genre. Caval is a thriller, and Couplet Petit a farce, and Après la Vie a melodrama. Ambitious, certainly, and we'll discuss whether we think it was successful, individually and as a whole. Despite the firm, and frankly arrogant, renaming of the films as 1, 2 and 3 by Tartan for both the UK cinema and DVD releases, with the film's actual name appended as merely a subtitle, The release order was different in France, and the director himself has said it doesn't matter in which order they were viewed. However, to keep things straightforward, we're going to stick to the tartan order for this episode, meaning we begin with the thriller, Caval. But before we dive into that, are there any opening remarks you'd like to make, Scott? The most ambitious crossover event in movie history. Um, (laughs) I was just waiting for Iron Man to show up. Um, no, uh, we watched this together, what, 17 years ago, I guess, now? Um, yes, uh, it scared me what? to think how long ago this was. <laughs> yeah. And, um, yeah, I hadn't, hadn't revisited in that time. I hadn't really thought about it all that much, but, um, it, it, as you say, trilogy kind of prompted us to revisit it, and uh, yeah, it was interesting to see how these go. Um, let's say, I guess we'll, we'll see how much of the director's aims have been met as we go along, yes. but, yes... I think you did the same as I did too, Scott, and this will sound completely novel to anybody who's listened to more than like two episodes, but uh, <laughs> I bought the DVDs right after seeing it and left them on a the shelf for 17 years. Um, I think you largely did the same as well. Yep, pretty much, yes. <laughs> I have actually thought about watching them a number of times. I even have a, a list of films that I want to go back to revisit, and Trilogy's been on there for quite a while, mm-hmm. and it just keeps getting shifted down and down and down. And yeah. <laughs> so this is forced me to rewatch it so that's <laughs> if nothing else that has come out of this episode <laughs> yeah um it was an interesting idea at the time 
Liz Wilton. It still seems like quite an interesting idea this time later. Um, mm. And I can't really think of all that much similar to it. So there's nothing that I'm particularly aware of. Yes, no, there is nothing that I can think of that is certainly to this degree. Yes, it's a cinematic universe before other cinematic universes were knocking <laughs> around, isn't it? Um, yeah, but I can't think of any other uh, dramas or sort of standalone episodes that would be even close to this degree of interconnectedness. Yes, for Inter- perhaps obvious reasons. Yes. I believe it's the correct <laughs> term. Yeah. Yes, I suppose for obvious reasons, it's, it's not easy. Yeah. And you also have to convince... People to, to go and watch three films to get the full value yeah, so of it. Convince people yeah. to spend the money on them too. Which it seems from box office returns they kind of didn't in this instance. Yes. So I suppose that may be why it's not not become a trend. Because uh, I actually can't really think of trilogy being mentioned at all um, in intervening time. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't. I, I think it's very little known. I did check, and the Tartan DVD box set is still available for sale on Amazon at least. And new, not like on like third yeah. place, third marketplace sellers or any third party sellers or anything like that are used. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it garnered enough attention to get a cinema release in Britain. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I guess it wasn't completely obscure at the time. It got at least some sort of decent reviews at the time of like, this is an interesting idea, and then seemed to die a death and nobody knows it. Yeah. Uh, but we're rectifying that today. Yes. Whether you want it or not. Yes. <laughs> Caval, or On the Run, as it is translated to English, begins with a prison break. As communist terrorist Bruno Leroux, the director Lucas Belvo, Luca Belvo, is uh, freed from Choki after 15 years by his former comrade Jean-Jean. Jean-Jean is killed by the police during the escape. Something Bruno takes so well, you might think he was some sort of uncaring sociopath or something. <laughs> Putting this clearly, deeply upsetting tragedy behind him, he heads across country to the Alpine city of Grenoble, where he seeks out the person he believes sent him to prison, the drug dealer Jacquia, Patrick Descombe, and looks up another former comrade, Jean Rivet, Catherine Fro who has given up on the communist ideals of a youth for a job in teaching, allowing her to indulge her favourite pastime of smoking. Mm-hmm. Let's that. Is there a point in this film that women is not smoking? No. Of course, any of the three of them. No. I don't know, you don't notice anybody else smoking all that much, but her, all the time. I feel like it's so obvious. There's got to be some sort of meaning here, but if there is, I have no idea what the director's saying. Yeah. <laughs> Bruno's attempts to get to Jacquia see him cross paths with Agnès... Dominique Blanc, the heroin-dependent wife of Pascal, Gilbert Melki, a detective assigned to hunt Bruno, and his intervention in Agnès's altercation with a street dealer sees him gain a useful and unexpected ally. Laurent is clearly not a good person, but he's complex enough, and crucially well-written and well-played enough, that he can't simply be pegged as total villain and Belvo gives enough air to his character that his beliefs and principles can at least be understood, if not condoned. Similarly, Agnes's helping of this wanted man plays as reasonable given the circumstances of their meeting. Whether or not Bruno is simply opportunistic and manipulative, or is choosing in a situation to act compassionately is ambiguous, but when set against, for example, his cold-blooded murder of someone in the wrong place at the wrong time, 
he rings true as a complex human rather than a disjointedly written character. Being part of this trilogy, while it's a rewarding if slightly too slowly paced watch, Guval on its own frustrates as much as it entertains. To whom does the mysterious Alpha Romeo belong? Who is Alain, and why does Cecile suspect that Bruno is he? Who's turned him in? Of course, if you watch the parts in a different order, you'll have different information at different times, and therefore different questions. But it demonstrates, even in this first part well, that it's really not possible to be fully satisfied with any one part of Trilogy in isolation. You really need to watch the lot. Talking of not being fully satisfied, perhaps the biggest knock against Caval is the ending which more or less comes out of nowhere and doesn't really fit in. Karma? Bad luck? Cosmic joke? Who knows? It's fine to subvert the more common comeuppance a character such as Bruno LaRue would normally be dealt, but I'd prefer it to be done in a less silly manner. Yeah. Yes, that ending's atrocious. Um, it's quite literally laughable. Um, I, I don't know what they were thinking with that, and it's... Uh, I think I said the same thing at the time. It really does leave a bad taste in your mouth because there's, there's a lot of good work in front of that. Um, you know, Larue is quite an effective kind of character, to, a mysterious character to build something around at the start, and uh, it develops in ways that works quite well. I mean, yeah, as, as you say, the, the unavoidable side effect of these three films being connected is that yeah, there's scenes here that serve like little to no dramatic purpose in this story but doing others and incidences where like some characters are acting in ways that you just have no real basis for working out why they're doing this yeah. um, because it's something you'll pick for another film and I suppose that's a weakness but it's also sort of the point so you can't really go too hard on that if you're if you're going to buy into this as a concept and I suppose you, you need to make your peace with that but it, it, there's no question that it makes the films individually weaker so that's a, that is a problem um, yeah. but it it turns out I don't think to be that much of a problem I can still get through each films I think individually without without other stuff affecting it all that much I still got a pretty decent amount of enjoyment from it I think if this had a just somewhat different ending, I would really enjoy um, <laughs> on the run. As it is, I just enjoy it. I think it's it's good. I think it undoes a lot of that in the last last what twenty seconds, maybe. Yeah. But uh, yeah, um, uh, the rest of it is all quite good. It's picking up a number of interesting characters and interesting performances, which you will then get to see more of in the other films. So that's all good. Yeah, it's strange just that ending too. Because the film could easily have ended just. Just a couple of minutes before that. Yeah. And it's maybe an ambiguous ending, but I'd be okay with that rather than... And then, <laughs> and here's a thing that happened that has nothing to do with anything else. Yes. <laughs> I don't like this ending. Yeah. Like, I've seen dumber endings and stuff. It's, it, it just seems to have nothing to do with anything that happened. That's the problem. It doesn't... Because of what happens, it can't be saying anything, surely. It's like, yeah, yeah, well, this happened then. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and I don't know how reliable a source it is, but uh, I did read it was a, a reshoot, the ending for this one, because there's a much grimmer ending, uh, which would have shown up in one of the other films that, that was going to happen. And uh, then they decided not to do that, which meant changing the end of this uh, in a way, which is perhaps this was just the best idea they had or was available to do at the time. It is possible that uh, they only had, um, what's his face, uh, Lucas... Uh, at the time to do any shooting with maybe. It is perhaps an ending more of necessity rather than uh, <laughs> dramatic common sense. But uh, Maybe, yeah. yeah. It 
doesn't absolutely kill the film for me, but it's uh, yeah, it's it's bad, it's bad, and it, as I say, it's, it's yeah. undoing so much good work that there's before it. Yeah, well, as I said, I've seen far dumber endings, like seen endings that are clearly in some way connected to what happens, but just they make no sense, or they're ridiculous, or unlikely, or you know, a dozen other sins mm. you could have. This is more just like this is happening to a different person at a different time a different film it's got nothing to do with anything else you know yes. well we just had to have an ending for this character um, yeah. this will do yes <laughs> uh, you mentioned Scott about the films being standalone and that's it so a real problem with the judge again the experiment is for them to be three interwoven stories yeah but the director wanted them also to work as standalone except they do to a degree, but also they can't absolutely because if you have them be satisfying, entirely satisfying on either narrative or character level, then you actually have nothing left for the other films to do. Yes. <laughs> so they simply can be complete standalone films. So I guess Luca Belvaux has done about as good as you could imagine doing in that regard. Yeah, yeah. It's like a tricky one to pull off. Because let's say if you you make it a more complete film, then you've answered a lot of the questions that you've left with the other parts. Yeah. What do you do then? Yeah, so that's a that's the fundamental problem with it, which uh, again we will circle back to at the end. But yeah, it's it, it kind of necessitates making each individual part weaker because some of those structural members are sitting in other films, and uh, that doesn't hurt it if you do watch all three in a relatively close space of time but if you're trying to uh, have them as standalone films then obviously they don't work as well and that's that there's no i don't think there's a way around that 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 is something that's always going to be inherent in the premise um it's just whether it it's enough of a hindrance to stop each individual film being uh being enjoy enjoyable and yes it it doesn't but I think there's a strong argument for these films could easily be made quite a bit stronger by themselves if they didn't have to worry about being interconnected. So, yeah, yeah but then yeah, they, they would just be films. There wouldn't be anything yes, technically be no remarkable or interesting yeah. about them. Uh, I, I would say these are, for the most part, you know, solid films yeah. made more interesting by being part of this experiment. Yes, yes, that's fair, I think. Okay, so... That's the first part of the end, Caval, the, the thriller. Going to take um, quite a turn now in tone <laughs> to the second part, uh, which has been described as a comedy, but as I said in my introduction, I, I consider it more of a farce mm. than a more standard comedy, which is an couple epiton, or in English, an amazing couple. So, Scott, well, one is, what is that one all about? Yes, yes. As you say, it does take a very different tone, of course, <laughs> uh, and with a mostly different cast as well. Uh, patent lawyer Alan Cost, played by Francois Morel, is trying to keep a secret from his wife, Cecile Ornella Muti, uh, that being that he needs to have a minor operation to deal with his tennis elbow. Unfortunately for Elaine, he's one of life's warriors and he's starring in a farce. So as Elaine starts ratcheting up his Ratcheting up his paranoia levels, his behaviour grows increasingly erratic, leading to Cecile to ask Gilbert Melky's police inspector Pascal Manet to snoop around, snoop, snoop around, to snoop around, to find out what's going on. Now, 
Noticing this, naturally, fuels Alan's delusions, leading to a number of flights of fancy where his condition is much more serious than he's being told, and also that everyone, in particular his family, are out to get him, with perhaps the exception of his long-suffering PA, Claire, played by Valerie Maurice. Now, meanwhile, Pascal is running his own scheme, for reasons better explained in the third film of this cycle, and proves to be an unreliable source of information in an effort to woo Cecile. Now, that's skipping over an awful lot of the detail, partly because it's not important to give you the setup, and partly because that's where the bulk of the comedy lies, and it is often quite funny indeed, with a really great comic turn from Francois Morel at the heart of it. Now, if it has a weakness, it's in the main coming from its interactions between Pascal and Cecile, which often feel like they belong in a different film, because, well, They're they do. Different film, yes. <laughs> um, that, however, is part of the point of the experiment, so I suppose I can't really get too hung up with it, but it's the one element where the, the wider story makes for a weaker individual film. Uh, regardless, I liked this film very much at the time, and I'm gratified to find out that I like it just as much now. It's perhaps the easiest to recommend out of all these films, if for some reason you were limiting yourself to one. But again, that's rather against the point of the exercise. Uh, but yes, this is a really entertaining and really great little comedy, and I think it works uh, really well. And yes, I heartily enjoyed revisiting it this time. Yeah, th- this is the one that works best as a standalone, I think, because it is mm-hmm. in so many ways so detached from the other stories. Exactly, yes. Um, yeah. That's why it also works at least well as part of the trilogy. <laughs> yes. It's, it's almost feels like it's taking part in a different universe. Uh, yes. The other parts are so much more peripheral in this, whereas the first and third parts are really quite closely intertwined. Yeah, yeah. Um, intertwined, but this part is so different. Um, I mean, there are bits and pieces. Uh, but it's it's just such an absurd film and farce can be such a difficult thing to get right mm-hmm. um, at least like, Faulty Towers is, is pretty much a farce and I love it it's just it's so incredibly funny it's one of the funniest things I've ever seen there's a reason that programme is so beloved not by everybody of course but it, it's really enduring Whereas you have, um, it's my my favourite horse to beat for um, bad farces, Death at a Funeral. Yeah. <laughs> which is just, a, wouldn't it be weird if this happened? Yeah, no. You forgot to be any comedy in that. <laughs> it's a particular type of comedy that is difficult to, to nail. This one manages it. And, and again, I don't quite know how, because you've got a central character who has decided that he's a target for the mafia. <laughs> And his doctor's in it. Um, yeah. That's stupid. It's really, really stupid. It works because... Um, is it Francois Morel? Yeah. Francois Morel, is just, he plays it so well. I mean, he's yeah. got a good comic face. I think that helps. <laughs> but he's just playing it so well. And, I mean, if this was another type of film, it would drive me crazy. Because I, I think I mentioned in my introduction that um, one of these people is like a tremendous idiot. The person I'm talking about is Cecile, Ornella Muti's character, because mm-hmm. apparently, I'm not quite sure how many um, British racing green classic um, 1950s Jaguars there are in Grenoble, <laughs> but I'm suspecting it's not many. Um, and particularly one that's missing a headlight and has a ten- <laughs> an entirely missing um, front wing. Yeah. I'm not sure how many of them there would be, and when there's one of those parked across the street from her when she's um, thinks she's alone with the police officer... But doesn't notice it. I think this person's an idiot. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. Within the genre of this film, it works. It's, it's just so ridiculous. It's really entertaining. And I'm not sure what else to say about it. It's, it's genuinely funny. Francois Morel is, is a ridiculous 
character, Francois Morel's character, rather, is he's, I don't know yeah. him well enough to know if he's a ridiculous character <laughs> also. But it's, to, to go from, he goes for a fairly routine check to the Doctor to believing that he's a target for the Mafia and that they're trying to kill him via a sort of, uh, eventually to a drug trip where he's lying asleep in the middle of the um, French summer um, <laughs> in a cornfield. Yes. <laughs> It shouldn't work anywhere near as well as it does, but it really is entertaining. <laughs> yeah, really great turn for Morel. Um, he does. Uh, it's one of the best straight man performances I've seen in a long time because he plays it completely straight all the way throughout. He's uh, he doesn't let that. He doesn't doesn't wink at the camera at any point. It's uh, it's just all played completely straight, and it works incredibly well. Um, yeah, really good stuff. Yeah, I mean, again, it's because. It is a farce. You have to buy into that quite quickly. Like, none of that, none of the stuff makes sense. Like, why is Claire's boyfriend willingly allowing himself to be tied up? Because he doesn't seem to be complaining at any point. She's going <laughs> along with it. Like, yeah. Okay, then you're going along with it. So will I. Yes. <laughs> uh, she does really well in it too. Actually, I think. Oh yes, Claire. yes. It's another. It's kind of a straight performance with a sort of a hint of exasperation. Yeah, yeah. Um, but she. And, Again, it's, it's a fairly tricky one to pitch just right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a really enjoyable film. It's, I think it's... As for this experiment, it's not so much that it's not successful, it's, just, it's the least essential part of it, because it doesn't really tie in more than consequentially with... Uh, inconsequentially, I guess, really, with the rest of the stuff. Yes, I, I would say in terms of this, and maybe talk more about it in the kind of wrap-up, but there is a real case to be made for this would simply be a better film if it was not part of this trilogy. Um, and there's a certain degree of interconnectedness between Afterlife and On the Run that makes sense for it to be part of this experiment, and I think that cannot be said for an amazing couple. I think this would be simply a better film if it was not part of this, if it didn't have to deal with the baggage that came with having these other scenes in- installed, because they do feel like they're from a different film, as I say, because, well, they are. Um, yeah. they, they're different in tone, different in style, and it it's a bit of a break in the, the flow of the film. And that's a slight problem. Um, it is to its credit that it, it is not more of a problem. Um, yeah. It's not really enough to get my sort of panties in a bunch about it, but it is. Uh, I think it is pretty clear that it would be a better film if it didn't have to do those things. Yeah, I mean, it's because the, I mean, the idea behind trilogy is is interesting, and it's trying to like the the different perspectives, and the intertwining stories, and the idea of like peripheral characters being their the main characters in their own story. Yeah. And that's all good. And the idea of the different genres, that's good. Comedy's always going to be the one that's difficult yeah. to fit with the other two because the first film's about a terrorist. Yes. <laughs> I mean, and you can do comedies about terrorists, I Witness Four Lions, which yes. is phenomenal. Mm. Um, but the way that's done, yes. you, so you can't have your comedy f- section basically have anything to do with the terror section. Yes, it yes. isn't going to work when you've sort of set your terrorist bit as the the thriller. So yes, it, it, it's amazing that it works at all. Yeah, but I'm I don't know whether comedy was actually the best choice for the for one of the three genres that yes um, Luca Belvo uh, tried here. That's it again. 
it's a very entertaining film, so I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> yes. Um, and as I said already in this podcast, not really seen anything else like this, trying this sort of thing. So, yeah, so there's not really anything to, to base it on or to see, oh, these other people, just, this didn't work, I'll try it this way. It's like, there's not really much else like this. Yes, it's not been done better or worse or at yes, all. It's not been done. <laughs> yes. That's better. That should be. Get on to the final part of it with what's variously called after the life or afterlife, depending on translation, I guess. Yes, yeah, so a bad translation would, would put the in, um, <laughs> I think. But yeah, après la vie, or as you say, Scott, afterlife, which is not afterlife. Mm. Afterlife, not afterlife. That's in heaven. Uh, focuses primarily on the relationship between Gilbert Melkis Pascal and his wife Agnès Dominique Blanc. If you follow the DVD or cinematic order, then you'll come to Après la Vie last, and therefore it necessarily suffers most from feeling like it's retreading familiar ground. However, as well as filling in details of Pascal Danieci's relationship and their interactions with other characters, it contains new information that clears up mysteries from Caval in particular, <clears throat> such as the mysterious pale blue Alfa Romeo. It also contains a crucial piece of information that... Watched in this order reveals the truth and undermines another character's actions, or viewed before Caval creates dramatic irony. The most crucial role of Afterlife is in filling out the character of Pascal. I described him in the introduction as a corrupt ish cop, and it's already fairly clear from Caval that his biggest wrongdoings are in service of his wife and not personal gain. But this episode gives further insight into his and his wife's relationship demonstrating both love and dependence from both parties, even if Pascal is still clearly quite a tool, and (laughs) never adequately justifying his use of police time and resources to investigate some man who has been hiding something from his wife. (laughs) Ornella Mutti is beautiful, or I really loved Flash Gordon, doesn't cut it. (laughs) Especially when her husband has been hiding something from her for the distressingly and painfully long time of since Saturday. (laughs) Curiously, Agnès becomes less sympathetic in Apré-Lévy, coming across as irrational, unreasonable and demanding. But Dominique Blanc's slightly dead-eyed, low-energy portrayal of her character across the three films makes sense, as here she sells the fear and distress that her addiction and the loss of the dependable nature of both her supply and her husband cause her. Of course, if you're the same kind of jackass that the doctor is in this film let all the junkies die, then you're not going to appreciate that. But while it's entirely reasonable to judge someone for starting to take drugs, there are crocodiles, as Linda Day observed on the episode of Press Gang on this theme. I only mention that because I've just recently re-watched Press Gang and I still love it. <laughs> um, and also I think I've been in love with Julia Sawala's Linda Day since I was nine years old. hasn't changed. <laughs> Stupidity shouldn't come with a life sentence or the death penalty even though, of course, it often does. While Caval's ending is at best a bit silly, the ending to Afterlife is fitting to the title in many ways, as Pascal finds himself in despair as Agnès decides to rid herself of drugs without knowing that the final dose her husband obtained for her indirectly cost the life of at least one friend and colleague, if not more. It's hard not to call Après la Vie the least essential of Belvaux's trilogy, but... I'm sure that's a similar result of being the last part that I watched, and I still enjoyed it. Depends on viewing order out of ten. <laughs> yes, um, I, I agree. This was the way they were presented in cinema back in the day. Um, this was 
basically my feeling. It, it felt at least the least essential, mainly because you've seen quite a big chunk of it before, yes, <laughs> just from patchwork from other films. But uh, I think I did actually enjoy it quite a lot more this time round. I recall you didn't care much for the ending the last time. Yeah, I still don't, but um, I, I was a bit more sold on it this time round, I think, mainly because, as you mentioned, you do get a bit more of a look into Agnes's character, which um, when you when I viewed them, you know... Like within within the day of each other, um, mm-hmm. it, it, the contrast is a bit more um, stark. Is you know the kind of dead-eyed, detached performances in the other two, where she shows up, and the kind of the more emotional and impactful uh, performance you get in, in this film, uh, which was I think perhaps a little bit lost when they were shown. I think they were a couple of weeks apart, off the top of my head. A couple of weeks, I think. Yeah. yeah. I think so. It was a bit further apart in France, I think, actually. I think, um, but mm-hmm. yeah, here it was within a couple of weeks. But even then, it's still enough time to mm-hmm. to lose a wee bit of the feeling. Yeah, of it. take away a bit of the nuance of it as well. And I think that also helped with um, getting a bit more of a look into Gilbert Melky's character, where you can get a bit more of the the reasons behind him coming across as a complete douche canoe in the first uh, <laughs> couple of films, and you, you get more of a, a feeling for that. It, it makes it kind of retroactively makes other films a little bit more satisfying. Uh, as I was saying, I think just to kind of as a kind of wrap up of the, the trilogy as an experiment, I think there's a really solid case for simply making an amazing couple its own film, shorn of this and combining most of the elements of On the Run and Afterlife into one film. Because mm-hmm. On the Run in particular has a lot of filler. You you spend a lot of time in On the Run watching people driving in a car, <laughs> uh, which you really do not need to. <laughs> and, and it's like a what two and a half hour film is it's long. And it was quite as long as that, but it's it's, it's, um, it's reasonably long. Yeah, and um, I think there's a solid case to be made that you could make something really quite special out of taking um, On the Run and Afterlife and combining them, because although they're supposedly different genres, like thriller and melodrama, I think in actuality they're not all that dissimilar from each other. I... I think the only real difference is the amount of action that happens in it, and if that's enough to call something a thriller rather than a melodrama, then I suppose okay, fill your boots. <laughs> but it's, I think, in terms of the the characters it's it's portraying and the way they're portrayed, I think there's a lot more commonality between them, certainly between these two, than there is with an amazing couple, uh, by a long chalk. Yeah, I, I would say there's not there's not a huge difference in genre between um, Caval and Apri Levy. And I guess it qualifies more as melodrama because it's more about the relationship to the emotion of it, yeah, yeah. yeah um, but it's they do feel much more of a piece than Ancopliepidon mm-hmm. uh, does. And I think if you combine the emotion of this and the the narrative and the, the pace of on the run, I think there's a case to be made that you could have two. And again, this is uh, speculation and hand waving, but I think there's. A really good chance you would have two really great films uh, by a com- combined combination of the, the most important elements of these two and having an amazing couple being its own thing. So, you know, two really great films rather than what we've got here, which is three pretty good ones. Now, I'm not going to complain about it too much because, hey, three pretty good films is three pretty good films. What's wrong with that? But, and of course, it could have gone horribly wrong. Uh, who, who could say? But, yeah, as an experiment, I, I, I guess I can kind of see why it's not been really repeated again, to my knowledge. It's clearly very difficult to pull off. And I think even when it's pulled off as well as it can, I, I don't think there's any way you could do this trilogy much better than uh, uh, Lucas has done. But I think the end results have been a little bit 
subpar with what you could have done with that amount of material. It's it's not a failed experiment, but it's just an experiment that's proven that perhaps the experiment wasn't all that worth doing in the first place, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean. Yeah, it comes to like, like his idea was that you know what happens when characters are off screen and like. I think the, the the resounding answer that most people would have had is like I don't care. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm glad he's done it. That that he's trying something different, and that wasn't you know a complete failure. It wasn't an unwatchable mess or anything like that. Yeah. So it's just you know just trying something a bit narratively different. So yes. You're welcomed. Yes, it certainly gives us plenty to talk about. Oh yes, I think if these had just been two decent films, might watch them. Oh, this is quite good, but then you know, without an awful lot to say about it. Yeah. Whereas at the very least, we've got a podcast episode out <laughs> because we could talk about all three of them together. And I would say, at any rate, these films deserve far more than the relative obscurity that they've languished yeah, in because uh, they're definitely worth looking out for. Um, I. I don't remember this ever coming up in any conversation. Well, it barely came up in conversation at the time, and it certainly hasn't yeah. been a major touchstone since. And I think it's a that's quite unfair. Um, it didn't do great guns at the box office or anything like that. Um, it was not a huge commercial success, and it deserves more than that. It deserves more than not even being a footnote. Um, it's a really interesting experiment, and there's three really good films as part of it. So. What's not to love, and I, I don't understand why it doesn't get a bit more of a uh, a bit more love from um, the more art housey crowd that you'd think would yeah, be. Yeah, yes, but I mean, I don't. I mean, I've not listened or read all that much in terms of film stuff that um, it may have come up on, and um, I've not been listening out for it. But I mean, I've never forgotten these films. Yes, I've forgotten like the great details because it was a long time since I watched them. But I never forgot that I watched them. I never forgot the idea behind it. Yes. And that's what, that's 17 years now since they came out? Yeah, yeah. And, but I, and I know I could talk to you about them because we saw them together, right? So <laughs> yes. You're the only person I know who's seen these. <laughs> I've yes. never heard anybody else talk about it, ever. Yeah. Which is just just weird, and it certainly deserves far more recognition than that, as you say, Scott. Yes, so if we do leave you with one thought today, it's please go and dig out these films somehow, try and get hold of them, watch them. I think they are... It's an interesting little experiment, and I think it deserves much more love than it has received. And uh, yes, if we can... So please, please, if you can, find us and watch it, and uh, let us know what you think of it. Yes, or if you are one of the people who has already seen it, please tell us, because really, I, I've never heard anybody else talk about them. I'd love to know if yes. anybody else has seen them. Yes, because we think we might have imagined them somehow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, again, we didn't see it in some sort of very small um, art house cinema or something. We saw it in the big UGC in Edinburgh. Yes. In or did we? <laughs> <laughs> the one that's now the Cineworld at Fountain Bridge. Uh, it's yeah, assuming that we didn't have a um, shared hallucination, yes. <laughs> I mean, UGC and then several went forward actually quite good with showing our house stuff, but again, it wasn't um, stuck in like film or Cameo 3 or something like that, yeah. tiny, tiny yeah. screenings in Edinburgh. was a, you know, decent-sized screen at a proper multiplex cinema. Mm. And then, yeah, just never heard about them since, which is a real disappointment. So if you are actually... One of the few people apparently who's seen it, please tell us. Um, and if not, then give it a go. It's got says, uh, I like the box set is still available on Amazon at the moment. New, 
not used or anything, so there's presumably enough interest that there's still some stock, you know, 16, 17 years after its DVD release. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's kind of a shame that it's not more well-known. It's an interesting idea. Absolutely. Seek it out and report to, with us, to us with your findings, and if you'd like to do so, then why not do so on Twitter? We're on there. That's at twitter.com slash fudsonfilm or... At Fuds on Film, I suppose, would be the easy way to say that. Or you can go to get to us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Fuds on Film or even email podcast at Fuds on Film.com. Uh, so, yes, thanks very much for your attention and we'll be back with you soon with another podcast. Um, but until such times, I will bid you adieu. That's for lie. Yes, <laughs> I don't know why the pause. Traumatic tension. <laughs> Au revoir.